Good morning. Let's uh, take a moment to pray again as we prepare to hear more from the Scriptures. Our Father, earlier we were singing, and that song was a prayer. We were asking you to speak truth to us. So we ask you again, speak truth to us through your word. Speak truth to us through your Holy Spirit. We would take that word and drive it deep into the heart of every person who's here today. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So we're uh, continuing our series through the minor prophets. And if you haven't been with us, we are um, working our way through the Bible. It's a three-year project. And, and just doing one message from each book of Scripture so that we could get a sense of why is it that we are glad that God has said these things to us? What did He say to us in these books of the prophets that uh, is a little bit different from other parts of Scripture, and why are we glad that He did? Today we're, we're preaching from the shortest book in the Old Testament. It's, it's the book of Obadiah. And it's so short, it doesn't even have chapter numbers. It's not long enough to bother dividing it into chapters. It's uh, really just a few paragraphs long. And Obadiah speaks to the issue that it's hard to live in a world where arrogant people inflict pain on others. He speaks to the truth that it's hard to live in a world where arrogant people inflict more pain on others who are already hurting. That will become more clear as we hear and walk through these uh, verses. To set the stage, we need to look at a map to understand what's going to be spoken about through this prophet uh, Obadiah. He's speaking about the kingdom of Edom, which is down here to the south of Israel and Judah. Now, originally, Israel was one nation, one kingdom. But after the death of King Solomon, it split into two different kingdoms, two different countries, uh, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And Judah is where the city of Jerusalem was located. And so the kings who were descended from David still reigned in Jerusalem until the year 586 B.C., about the time that Obadiah is writing, the Babylonian Empire came, swept in through this area and conquered the city of Jerusalem and conquered the kingdom of Judah and took most of his residents into slavery. And Edom rejoiced. There's a long history of conflict between Judah and Edom. And the people who lived in Edom were glad that the people who lived in Judah were suffering. Now, where's Edom? If you've ever seen a picture or visited this place, the city of Petra, it's now in modern-day Jordan. That's, that was built by descendants of the Edomites. That part of the world is what Obadiah is talking about. So Obadiah in Obadiah, we're going to read about Edom and God's perspective 
on those who would rejoice at the pain, not just of other people. We'll see that it's, this is not just a simple case of personal grudges. It's not even a case of international conflict, simply. It's a case of, of people from this nation, Edom, rejoicing that God's people were being defeated, rejoicing that maybe now they would shut up about their God because now there was proof that their God wasn't all he was cracked up to be, proof that God's chosen king descended from David was really just a weakling, proof that God's purpose to change the world was being silenced and defeated. So a couple of practical tips as we get ready to listen uh, to the Scriptures. Sometimes we're going to hear Edom referred to by that name and sometimes by the name Esau. And we're going to hear Judah referred to by that name, but sometimes by the name Jacob. The patriarch Isaac had two sons named Esau and Jacob, and they had a long history of conflict. And so they were descended uh, they were the ancestors, Esau of Edom and Jacob of Judah. And so those names are being used to talk to us about that conflict. The other thing you need to keep your eye, uh, ear open for as we hear the Scriptures read is this. Uh, who's the audience? In verses 1 through 4, God is speaking to Edom, but He wants Judah to overhear what He's saying to those who are rejoicing at their pain. And in verses 10 through 14, he's still speaking directly to Edom. And then in verse 15, the audience is going to expand, and you'll hear a reference to all nations. All nations need to listen to what God is saying to Edom. And then in verses 16 and 17, God is speaking to Judah. And he's saying to Judah, you have had to drink bitter wine of suffering and wrath but it will not be this way forever. Let's hear as Stacy reads the scriptures for us. Today's scripture comes from verses 1 through 4 and 10 through 17 of Obadiah. The vision of Obadiah. This is what the sovereign Lord says about Edom. We have heard a message from the Lord. An envoy was sent to the nations to say, Rise and let us go against her for battle. See, I will make you small among the nations. You will be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of rocks and make your home on the heights, who say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? Though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. Because of the violence against your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame. You will be destroyed forever. On the day you stood aloof while strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. You should not look down on your brother in the day of his misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. You should not march through the gates of my people in the day of their disaster, nor look down on them in their calamity in the day of their disaster, 
nor seize their wealth in the day of their disaster. You should not wait at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives, nor hand over their survivors in the day of their trouble. The day of the Lord is near for all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. Just as you drank on my holy hill, so all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and drink and be as if they had never been. But on Mount Zion will be deliverance. It will be holy, and the house of Jacob will possess its inheritance. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So I had the privilege a few years ago of meeting a man from India named Saji Lukos. And uh, if you hear Saji talk about his life story, he, he tells you about a very painful episode of suffering that he had to endure. Um, it, was, it was a time when he was beaten severely, bound, tied up, uh, beaten and left to, uh, to just suffer with no attempt at healing him. What made it worse was not just the pain of suffering, but the pain of knowing that someone else was rejoicing in his suffering. He was being beaten by one of his close relatives, a relative who was glad that he was suffering, glad that other people were witnessing the suffering, Glad that not only he was experiencing pain physically, but that he was being humiliated in front of others. What made it even worse for Saji was the reason this relative was glad was, was, was because the relative didn't want other people doing what Saji had done. Saji had become a Christian. He had become a believer in Jesus. And this relative wanted Saji to suffer so that God's purpose of bringing many people who live in the land of India to himself would be defeated. He was not just glad that this man was suffering, but glad that he was suffering because it would mean defeat for God's purpose in the world. Now, that experience may sound strange to you. You may not have had an experience like that in which other people would rejoice that you were suffering precisely because you belong to God. Now, you, all of us have had situations where somebody was glad we were hurting, right? We, we've all been in that kind of conflict where someone really had it out for us and they were glad when something bad happened to us, and that hurts. But the book of Obadiah is speaking about that next level of someone being glad that you're hurting precisely because it would mean God is being defeated and shamed. That may not be your experience. It is the experience of many Christians in many parts of the world. It may be our experience one day, even if it hasn't been already. It certainly was the experience of God's people in the days of Obadiah. So what do we do with this? Let's just walk through the verses that we read. And we see in the first four verses of Obadiah that 
In a world where arrogant people inflict pain on others, God promises that he will act. Right? The, the descriptions of the arrogance of the kingdom of, of Edom, like feeling like we make our home on the heights. Now, if you look across the, the Dead Sea from the borders of Judah into the boundaries of Edom, you see these cliffs that rise up almost a thousand feet. So what an appropriate image for someone who is arrogant. God can't touch me up here. Nobody can get me up here. I make my home on the heights. I say, who can bring me down to the ground? And God promises that when arrogant people inflict pain on others, He will act. He says, even if you soar like an eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down. God doesn't want us to live in a world where arrogant people inflict pain on others. He promises he'll act. Well, we keep reading. What happens later in this little book of Obadiah? We find out this not only a world where arrogant people are inflicting pain, but these are arrogant people inflicting more pain on others who are already hurting. And in that situation, God promises that he will come. Verse 4, I will bring them down. God will act. But we read further, and we, we sense that, wait, the, the, these people in Edom were not just inflicting pain. They were inflicting pain on Judah after Judah had already been conquered by their enemies. And we, we just read this devastating list, right? Because of your violence against your brother Jacob, who is already a victim of violence, and you're piling on more. Verse 11, you stood off like, like you could care less while strangers entered the gates of your neighbors. You shouldn't look down on your brother in the day of his misfortune and boast the day of their trouble. Verse 13 makes it even more grievous, right? Don't walk through the gates of my people so that you can plunder their wealth. They can't defend their homes because they've been enslaved by the Babylonians. You hear this sense of here is the people already broken, already defeated, and this arrogant nation of neighbors is saying, yeah, we're glad because now we get to have their stuff. And you know what? We think the Babylonians missed a few. So we're going to stand at the crossroads, verse 14 says, and we're going to kill whoever escapes the Babylonians. No, no, no. We can do better than kill them. Let's do this. Let's capture them and then sell them to the Babylonians as slaves. In that kind of world, what does God do? What does God do when when he looks at a world and finds that there are arrogant people who are willing to break the broken, to victimize a second time those who are already victims, to hurt those who are already hurting. What does God do? What does he say? He says, verse 15, the day of the Lord is near for all nations. Is that good news or bad news? Well, 
If you were with us a couple of weeks ago, we, we were looking at the book of uh, Amos, uh, Joel, sorry, two weeks ago, and talking about the day of the Lord. Last week, Amos, more about the day of the Lord, Obadiah, the day of the Lord. The prophets spoke about this a lot. What is the day of the Lord? The day of the Lord in the Old Testament is the day when God comes. He promises to come into his good world and to complete the restoration of his world. God has unleashed restoration into his world. He, he did that with a promise in the Garden of Eden. He said, you know what? This serpent that has brought so much curse into the world, one day a human baby will be born and crush his head. And then he chose Abraham, and he said, Abraham, I want to use you, make you a great nation, and I want to use you as a blessing to all nations. Abraham's people settle in the land of Israel and are meant to be a light to all nations. God has started a work of redemption, and he won't give up until it's finished. And he says, I will come. I am going to come into my good world, and I am going to finish what I've started. So, the day of the Lord is near for all nations. That day of the Lord, what's it like? Well, it's Two possible outcomes, if you read the Scriptures, when God comes into His good world, if you're the kind of person who has said, I want to remain independent of the love by which God is redeeming the world. I have seen God's plan for redeeming the world, and I think I can do better myself. Or I've seen God's plan for redeeming the world, and I don't see what's in it for me. There's more in it for me if I plunder my my brutalized neighbors. If you have looked at God's story of redeeming love and you have said, I don't want to have anything to do with it, then the day of the Lord is an ultimate day of disaster and loss. But there's another outcome. That outcome is one of goodness and blessing. The day of the Lord can be the ultimate day of reversal of every injury, the healing of every wound, a day not of loss but of fullness. If instead of resisting the love by which God is redeeming the world, you embrace it. So is the day of the Lord good or bad? Yes. Yes. It is a good kind of day when God comes into his world and says, no more. No more arrogance, no more violence, no more inflicting of pain. No more hurting the hurt, no more breaking the broken. And if you insist on living outside of my plan, then you don't get to enjoy that because you're a threat. And if you've lived on the other side of that and you're the broken one, the humiliated one, the one beaten, the one destroyed, then it's good news to know that God will come and He will restore all things. And from then on, the experience will be one of just enjoyment of His love. That's the day of the Lord. God looks at a world where arrogant people are inflicting more pain 
on others who are already hurting to begin with. And God says, I will come. But what about this situation? What if God looks on the world and he finds that there are arrogant people who are rejoicing in the pain of his own people because it signals the failure of his purposes? What if God looks and he sees Saji suffering? What if God looks and he says, this person isn't just happy that an enemy is suffering. This person is happy that Saji is suffering because it will mean my purposes are being set back. What does God do then? Glad you asked. This is what he said to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless you. I will make your name great. And you will be a blessing. Through you, goodness will come to other people. Not just for you. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. You hear that day of the Lord logic already in this promise, right? It would be a day of curse or a day of blessing. Depending on how you relate to the work of redeeming love that God is doing in the world. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. That is the purpose for which God raised up Abraham and his descendants. That is the purpose for which God raised up David, one of Abraham's descendants, to reign on the throne in Jerusalem, to be his anointed chosen king. That is the purpose for which God raised up Jesus, to inherit the the kingdom that once belonged to David and expand its borders to not just be for people who lived in one little spot on the earth, but for people of all nations. That was God's plan and purpose all along. So when Edom rejoices at the defeat of Judah, they're not just saying, yay, politics. We're the winners, they're the losers. They're saying, we don't care that God's purpose to redeem the world is experiencing a setback. In fact, we're happy that God's purposes aren't coming true. We're happy that his Messiah, his anointed king, is now a slave in Babylon. We're happy that that chapter of the world story is now over. Edom is rejoicing. Is there an answer to that kind of pain? The answer is this. God performs what he has promised. He has promised that the day of the Lord will come. He has promised that it will be a day of fullness for those who embrace his redeeming love. And he's promised that it will be a day of justice and loss for those whose deeds have shown that they reject and celebrate the defeat of his redeeming purposes. God has promised that a day like that is coming, but God does more. 
he performs what he has promised. He himself enacts the day of the Lord in the coming of Jesus. We walked through this a couple weeks ago. We're going to do it again. Why? Because it's good news. That God doesn't just say, the day of the Lord's going to come one day. Y'all get ready. God performs what he has promised. He has promised that judgment will fall on all those who reject him. And he comes into this world and he experiences that judgment even though, even though he doesn't deserve it. Jesus experiences the ultimate day of disaster and loss. And then you know what happens next in the story. The day of the Lord is a day of disaster and loss, or it can be a day of great blessing and gain and fullness. And so we aren't surprised that God enacts that part of the story too, that he performs what he has promised. Hey, a day of great blessing and honor and reversal of all evils and fullness is going to come to my people. And so God performs what he promised. And in the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, the day of the Lord comes to one person, and it will come to other people. How do we know it's right to read the book of Obadiah in this way? Well, because we read verse 16. Judah, you had to drink on my holy hill, and one day all the nations will drink and drink and be as if they had never been. What's that all about? Well, it's a well-known symbol in the Old Testament. If you read Jeremiah chapter 25, you'll encounter it. It's God's justice and his, his vengeance on evil being depicted as a cup of wine. A cup of wine that when you drink it, it makes everything go loopy. You get drunk and, and, and you're incapacitated by this experience. You're overwhelmed by the experience of God's judgment. Jeremiah used that image. Isaiah did. Obadiah is borrowing on that. Jeremiah and Obadiah were buddies. They lived at about the same time. Preached to the same people. Compared sermon notes, maybe. And Jesus uses that same metaphor, doesn't he? If you remember in the Gospels, Luke chapter 22, for example, on the night before he's arrested, Jesus goes to pray by himself. He asks his disciples to pray while he's praying. And he goes to a garden. And the scriptures say that he knelt in that garden and he said, Father, if you are willing, let this cup pass from me. Jesus is using the same image. Father, I know the day of the Lord is about to come upon me. I know that wine of wrath is about to be poured out on me. I'm about to drink it down to its last drop. I am about to suffer as much as any human being could suffer, not only physically, but I'm going to be under your curse and judgment for things I never did. 
And if there is another way, Father, could this cup pass away from me? I don't want to experience that part of the day of the Lord, but not my will. Yours be done. Jesus enacted the day of the Lord. He drank the cup of wrath. And on the resurrection, Jesus experienced what Obadiah was talking about. On Mount Zion, there will be deliverance. Mount Zion is another name for Jerusalem. There in Jerusalem, Jesus was delivered from death. Jesus was delivered into fullness of life. And the house of Jacob will possess its inheritance. Every good gift that God the Father wants his people to inherit was given to Jesus on that day of resurrection and given to him so much that he can share it with us and never run out. The day of the Lord has come to Jesus. And when Jesus comes again, the day of the Lord will come to the rest of us. And there are two possible outcomes Two possible responses. One is we go on saying we, we don't care about God's purpose to redeem the world. We, we reject God's Messiah. We ridicule God's people. We don't care. When the day of the Lord comes, I'll experience it for myself. I'll drink that cup. I'll take my chances with being done to me as I have done. The other alternative is not to resist but to repent. To come before God and say, I embrace your Messiah. I want to be one of the people that he leads in this world so that your purpose to redeem the world can expand and grow and have greater and greater impact in my life and the lives of other people. I affirm that. I celebrate it. I embrace it. I want it. And when the day of the Lord comes, I don't want to take a chance on it being done to me as I have done to others. When the day of the Lord comes, I want someone else to drink that cup in my place. When the day of the Lord comes, I want it to be done to me as it was done by Jesus. That's the beauty of the Christian gospel, is that God came into the world and He performed what He promised. He experienced the fullness of judgment so that anybody who says, Jesus, will you stand in my place on that day? Won't have to drink that cup. And Jesus, can I have what you alone deserve on that day? I could experience the fullness that really should belong only to Jesus. I have a question for you. Are you grokking what Obadiah is saying? It's kind of a big, ugly word, right? It just seemed like it needed to be real big letters and in green. Grok. It's a made-up word. It was made up by a, a science fiction author in the 1960s in a novel about a man from Mars coming to Earth. Stranger in a Strange Land is the name of the book. And this guy invented a verb because it's a verb on Mars. It's not a verb on Earth. And, and to grok means to really get somebody, to really fully get them, to really hear what they're saying, to, to sort of intuitively connect with who they are. 
so that you're not just sort of halfway hearing, partially getting, but fully getting. So if we were to walk out of, 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 of this experience of, of reading Obadiah and hearing what God is saying through him, and we were to say, hey, we shouldn't inflict pain on others, and we shouldn't inflict more pain on people who are already hurting, Obadiah would be saying to us, yep, you're starting to get it. You're partly understanding. Yes, those things are true. But we ain't grokking yet. You're not grokking me. You haven't fully understood. Obadiah would say, you aren't fully hearing me unless you're saying, God, I want to be one of your people. I want to not hurt others because I am one of your people. God, I want to embrace your chosen king, Jesus. I don't want to break the broken because I love the broken one. I want to be part of your purpose to redeem the world. God, I embrace what I could easily reject. I embrace what I once rejected. I embrace everything that you are and all that you offer in Jesus. I embrace the one who has performed what you promised.